Welcome to the Sound on Sound Recording and Mixing Channel podcast. I'm Paul White, Executive Editor of Sound on Sound magazine, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Robjohns. We are going to talk about the evolution of recording since we both got into it until the present day when everything's digital and magic and fits on a postage stamp. What was your first experience of recording here? Oh, um, it would have been when I was probably pre-teens, 10 or 11 maybe, um, and I became aware of my father's uh, tape recorder, uh, which he built himself. It was the, the transport itself, I think, was made by a company called Calaro. That, that rings a bell at all. It's a British company. Um, and the electronics were all external from the tape machine. So you literally had this sort of mechanical transport with some wires that came out the back from the tape heads. And um, they went into a radiogram where the the uh, replay electronics were, were built, which he did all himself out of valves. Yeah. Um, and I remember playing with that and getting told off for messing up the tapes, increasing them and well, you know, all that sort of nonsense. That was the very first tape machine I remember. Um, the one I really got to grips with was an Akai 4000 a 4000 dB, actually, because it had Dolby B on it. Ah. Uh, and that had the famous SOS button. Ah, sound on sound. Sound on sound button, which let you overdub by uh, disabling the uh, the erase head. Yeah, and you could bounce from one track to the other as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was my first real practical use of tape machines. Right, it sounds like your beginnings were similar to mine, except uh, my dad's machine was an old valve mono Ferranti tape recorder and we used to uh, hand crank it at different speeds to make special effects and stick bits of plastic over the uh, over the erase head and I would probably have been about 11 or 12 at the time I did that and then when I went to college my first real machine was a ferrograph mono machine which I remember because I bought it about two miles from where I lived and carried it all the way back and it weighed a tonne <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't sound very good. Was it's, that valve as well? Must have been. Yeah, that yeah. had valves in it, and it had a mains transformer that you could rotate for minimum hum, all that kind oh, of thing. Oh, clever. If you remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I managed with that for quite a while, but I think my first proper multi-track machine was the original um, TIAC 3340 with the symbol sync switches on the head. Mm. That was a, a four-track thing. And I, I, I saw it in a second-hand shop in Worcester when I was coming back from London for some reason and thought, I must possess that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, but, I'd looked it up. That was 1972 when that came out. Yeah, yeah. So th- it would have been mid-70s when I bought that. Mm. So you, you mentioned Simulsync. Um, perhaps people won't be aware of exactly what that was. And it was quite an innovation that, that Tascam brought in with that. So what do you mean by the Simulsync switches? Well, these were on the head block and they, they switched it so that you could play back the track via the record head to avoid the latency that you got between uh, the record head and the replay head because of the, the physical spacing. Uh, but back then, the, the quality of playback from that particular head was pretty awful. So you just put up with this really nasty quality sound when you were overdubbing and then switched back to the proper replay head when you'd finished. Then on later machines, uh, they actually designed the record head to sound half decent as a playback head. Yeah. It was to do with the size of the head gap, wasn't it? Yeah. I think early record heads tend, tend to have a very wide gap, and that meant that it had a, a relatively poor high-frequency response, so it all sounded a bit muffled. So what was your first uh, multi-track experience here? Uh, my first multi-track experience uh, wasn't until I, I started work, actually. It, was, it wasn't at the BBC. It was a friend of mine who worked at the BBC... Um, who was a budding uh, TV sound uh, composer, 
TV music composer. And uh, he got one of those Fostex machines. And I'm struggling to remember whether it was a, a B or an E series, because they're all a bit blurred in my memory as to what the differences were. But it was in the early 80s, probably 83 or 4, something like that. Yes, because they, they came out with, with the first eight-track quarter-inch machine, I believe. And then they went to 16-track half-inch. Half-inch, yeah. No, it, was, um, it ran on seven-inch spools. Uh, he had an eight-track machine. And uh, for, I mean, for the money, it was really quite impressive. So that was the first multi-track I came across. Um, no, before that, um, most of my stuff, I was into radio plays, dramas. And uh, so most of my stuff was actually just two-track and lots of editing with razor blades. And I did that at home a lot before, you know, when I was at school. And then when I went to university, I got involved in the university radio station. Uh, and they had four Revox A77s, Ooh. which were lovely machines. And a G36, actually, a Valve Revox G36. And uh, again, it was, it was, you know, editing music together, sometimes down to replacing individual notes. You know, just cutting notes out and putting in silly sound effects instead and that kind of thing. Um, but it was all just razor blade cutting on, on two-track. Uh, the first proper multi-track... I actually got my hands on in a in a in a sensible way was an Otari MX70. It was an eight track, one inch, um, and I got my hands on that because I specified it for a television sound dubbing theatre. Um, and uh, in those days, you used to transfer the the roughly edited dialogue tracks from VT. You transfer that onto a track on the multi track, and then you track lay all your sound effects, mix it all together, bounce it onto quarter inch tape, take it back into the video suite, and they laid it back against the the pictures using timecode. Um, and I des I was commissioned to uh, design and build this uh, this dubbing theater, and it was an MX70, which was Atari's cheapest professional multi track at the time. Mm. I think my experience with multi-track was all stuff that I had to buy myself, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so after the four-track, I had the, the later version of the, the four-track, which was the 3440, I think. Yes. Uh, which didn't have the horrible Simul Sync switches on the head block. And then after that, I went to uh, one of the Tascam eight-track machines, eight-track half-inch machines, I think it was, uh, wore the heads out and then bought another one. Mm-hmm. And that was all for my home studio setup. I got to various mixing desks. So I graduated from my original uh, passive homemade mixing desk to different things. I, I ended up with one of those nice uh, Allen and Heath desks, which was actually very good, apart from the lights behind the uh, VU meters used to die at regular intervals. Oh, yes. And the insert points used to get a bit dodgy, but everything else about that was good. And then I just graduated up through the ranks with... Um, 16-track, uh, eventually ending up with a Tascam 1-inch 16-track machine about the size of a gas cooker. I was going to say they're quite chunky things, aren't they, for a yeah. home studio? Yeah, yeah, with a DBX noise reduction on it. Uh -huh. In fact, I, th I think we probably ought to speak about our experiences with, with noise reduction because that's a part of the analogue world that people tend to overlook these days. But back then it was so important because without it, the signal-to-noise ratio was not that great. Yeah, in, in my experience with, with the, uh, the television stuff, we tended not to use noise reduction, to be honest. It was considered more trouble than it was worth. And, and because it's broadcast sound, you, you've already constrained dynamic range in the process of recording and, and mixing in the first place. So uh, we, we didn't tend to use a noise reduction on multitracks for that. We did in the music studios, and that was all Dolby A. It took a while to set up, having to go through every single track and tweak the, the input levels and the replay levels, and oh, it took forever. Yeah. Of course, with the more uh, home studio orientated machines, you didn't get Dolby A, did you? You got uh, you, you got variations on Dolby B and then Dolby C. 
And then Dolby S, didn't it? Dolby S came right at the end on those Fostex machines. Yeah, Dol Dolby S came out and it was like one of those moments that's finally a noise reduction system that really works and then, oh, it's all being replaced by digital. Digits, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the better Dolby S machines, and SR in the professional world, they really were looking at sort of 80, 90 dB of dynamic range, weren't you? Yeah. But then digits came out with the same, so it became pointless. Yeah, and of course for those who haven't experienced it, all the earlier noise reduction systems all came with side effects, and, and these side effects got lesser and lesser until we got to Dolby S. Yes. I think DBX was probably the most side effect prone because that was quite a harsh compander system. Mm. And if you had any tape saturation, any effect of that would be magnified by the, uh, by the noise reduction. Yeah, very much so. I was trying to add up how many different tape machines I've used over the years, not not in, in individual machines, but different types of machine. And, and actually, it's a lot, isn't it? I've, there was um, a Sony APR5003, which was a professional machine, uh, Atari MTR machines, lots and lots of different Studers, Tascam machines, Fostex machines, and they all work in the same way. You all lace them up in pretty much the same way. They all have the same kind of heads. They all have the same play, stop, record, yeah. wind buttons. It was all very straightforward and simple. Yeah, there was no learning curve there. Not really. I mean, occasionally you, you might try and lay something up slightly wrong, miss out a, you know, a, a damper arm or something, but they were all very, very straightforward. But I certainly don't miss the editing with razor blades. I mean, you had to have two lots of tape, didn't you? It was, it was one for splicing the tape and the other was the elastoblast for your fingers. <laughs> I used to love razor blade editing. It was quite a physical challenge, quite a skill. Oh, you've done a lot of it, but... Uh... To go into the detail that we tend to go into now with doors, it just wouldn't be possible. You, you'd end up with more tape, more adhesive tape than magnetic tape. Absolutely, yes. Watching a, a really skilled tape editor uh, is, was quite a joy. I mean, it really was a proper craft. Editing individual notes on things and then realising you've got the timing slightly wrong and having to pick an edit apart, pull the tape off it, you know, the sticky tape off and, and redo it. Very fiddly, very challenging, but very satisfying as well. What were your favourite tape recorder moments and what were your most frustrating? I think the most frustrating was all that line-up business, having to clean the head, clean the pinch roller, clean all the guides, and then put on the line-up tape and run through all the line-up tones. Um, general, general work, it was literally just, literally just uh, sorting out the, the overall level, but in an engineering sense, you had to go through all that record EQ, replay EQ... Um, and then lining up all the noise reduction systems, all the Dolby's and stuff. It just took forever. So even before you could, you were probably in the studio for half an hour or an hour before you, you actually wanted to do a session because it took that long to sort everything out. That was my least favourite. I think probably the most favourite, it was just the the physicality of it, the, the fact that you had to, you handled this tape and you laced it up and it whizzed backwards and forwards. And when you finished, you walked away with a reel of audio on a tape and it was something special and I still cherish that. Now, for me, the uh, the joy of it is, as you say, you got a physical piece of tape. It was easy to operate the machine, but the biggest frustration was the lack of an undo button. I remember one session uh, where we had a uh, a well-known violin player who wanted to drop in a new section about every bar and a half, and he wanted to do about 20 takes of it before he moved on to the next bar and a half. And, of course, you only have to make a mistake once on pressing those buttons and you've spoiled the drop-in and you have to go back to the previous one. Mm. Yeah, the undo button today is, is the best thing ever about digital. Absolutely, yeah, no, I can see that. But, I mean, tape is still popular. People are still recording on multi-track tape and analog two-track tapes. I've still got a two-track tape machine. Yeah, me you, too. You still have yours? 
well, actually, I've loaned it out permanently to someone, but it's still there, <laughs> should it be needed. Notionally still on the books. And I still have some cassette decks kicking about for if anyone turns up with a, an antique cassette that they want me to rescue. Mm. So that brings us to the transition to digital recording. And I think in my f- case, the first thing I bought was a DAT machine for mastering on. So I was still working on analog multitrack, but mastering on to DAT. How about you? Yeah, same. It was Well, actually, before the DAT, I bought... Um, a Sony PCM701, which was part of the F1 range. Yes. Um, and it was, uh, they, it was a video processor, really, because what they did was they, they digitised the signal um, in much the same way as you do today with, a, with an A to D converter, uh, but then instead of just recording the digits straight, they made it look like a television picture with black and white dots representing the ones and zeros. Um, and you recorded it on a video recorder. On Betamax. On Betamax, yes, they were very insistent it had to be Betamax. Um, and you actually had to have a special Betamax recorder that disabled the, um, the line dropout compensator, because otherwise it started making up fake data when, when the tape was a bit knackered, and, uh, and that confused everything. So, yeah, I had a PCM701, which was a 19-inch rack-mounting 2U high box, um, and a video recorder, which was the same sort of size. So it was quite a chunky setup. It didn't really uh, weigh any less than an analog tape recorder, I have to say. Um, but recording quality was really quite good, except that it had um, a high-frequency pre-emphasis on the recording to try and improve the noise performance. And that meant that every time somebody hit a cymbal, you overloaded because it boosted the high frequencies to such an extent that once you set your levels where you thought was right, if somebody hit a cymbal, it was guaranteed to overload. Uh, Very frustrating. Yeah. But uh, I had quite good experiences with the DAT machines. They seemed to be pretty reliable most of the time until they got old and the belt started to stretch, that was. I used to find there was a bit of in- inconsistency between different brands of machines. If you recorded it on a Sony and tried to play it back on a, a Fostex or a, or a Tascam or something, often it, it didn't work quite as well as it should and you had a bit of trouble occasionally. But overall, it was, it was quite a clever format. Um, and the size of the tapes was miraculous for us in the, in the 90s. Yeah, it was a, an album master that you could lose down the back of the sofa, wasn't it? Very easily, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happy days. But the DAT didn't last very long, did it? It was... Um, no, it didn't. It was a, a limited technology, really. Yes, as soon as computers came along, there were better ways of recording uh, digitally and cheaper and, and more reliable. Yeah. Because tape always deteriorates with age. It does. Uh, the first computer system I came across was a thing made by uh, AMS called the Audiophile. Oh, I remember that. Um, expensive. Very expensive. Um, in fact, it was when I was designing that uh, that dubbing theatre that I mentioned just now, uh, it was a toss-up between sticking with the proven analogue tape uh, format or going to the audiophile. And in hindsight, I wish we'd gone to the audiophile because it was quite clearly the future. We just didn't really have the budget for it at the time. But it was a phenomenal piece of kit. It was For people that aren't familiar with it, it, it had um, a monochrome screen and it was a big CRT tube screen in those days. And that displayed audio tracks and waveforms and then you had this sort of mechanical control surface with um, rotary encoders and buttons and stuff and when you were used to the machine you could really fly it was incredibly fast uh, because you didn't have to wait for tapes to spool back to the beginning um, and you could punch things in on the fly it was it was a wonderful thing yeah that's um, almost diametrically opposite to my first experience with digital multi-track which was of course the Ulysses ADAT, oh. which was notoriously unreliable. I think it was uh, it was an Era 7 generator that uh, recorded music occasionally as a side effect, <laughs> wasn't it? And 
and you could lock up several of these by uh, hooking up cables at the back and they would try to synchronise and it, it was like watching a laundrette wasn't it yeah it was dreadful it was, they were terrible that was um it used vhs tapes didn't it it did oh, uh, running tapes. at a higher speed with yeah. a mo- modified consumer deck I and mean, it was a great idea at the time but it, it just wasn't reliable mm. yes i do remember those when I was able to get rid of those and finally move on to a, a computer system, that was a bit of a luxury because, of course, computer systems first came along recording only MIDI. There were MIDI sequences, so you had to slave those up by using a, a SMPTE track on your analogue machine, which wasted an audio track, and then you had to waste the track next to it as a guard band yeah. so the signal didn't spill over onto the audio. Yes. And then you had to hope it all locked up, and sometimes it did. And often it didn't, and you have to go back and start all over again. Yes, I do remember those days. Yes. Uh, and not fondly, I have to say. Yeah, me too. So when computers first came along, oh, that was luxury. But, yeah, the price of hard drives when they first came out, it was a bit fearsome. I, I think my first system was the original, um, it was DigiDesign's sound tools back in in the day. That's before they became Avid. And this was just a stereo system. And I remember getting a particularly good trade deal on a 600 megabyte hard drive. This is megabytes, not terabytes or gigabytes. 600 mm-hmm. megabyte hard drive. And that I got for the princely trade price of £2,500 instead of the regular £4,000 that it should have cost. Wow. So, yeah, I did that calculation, didn't I? That if you were to buy a four terabyte storage back then, I mean, you can go to PC World now and get four terabytes for £100 or thereabouts. Back then, it would have been about £15.5 million to buy the same amount of storage. (laughs) My, my, times have changed. (laughs) Yeah. So I remember writing articles bemoaning the fact that, you know, it'll be a long time before hard drive storage becomes as cheap as tape. Yeah. But finally it did, and it overtook it by orders of magnitude. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I remember we used um, SCSI drives. Yeah, I remember those. Um, yeah, that was the... Because it was the only thing that was fast enough to carry that amount of data at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, we had portable drives in caddies with, with SCSI connections on the back. Uh, one, of the first, um, one of the first digital audio systems we used a lot in broadcasting uh, in radio was a thing called Sadie, which is still available now, um, owned by, by Prism now. And uh, that was... I remember seeing a first model in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, it was uh, four-track, I think. Um, and uh, it worked just like a tape machine. It was very simple to use. Um, but, but quickly, over the following years, of course, it, it grew and grew and grew and became a very powerful system. Fantastic editor. Um, not so much for music, but uh, for radio work, dramas and, and that sort of thing. A fantastic machine. But there were so many different um, digital audio workstations. There was another one we used a lot, uh, made by a company called DAR. Uh, which we used a lot, and there was one from Augan, and uh, yeah, lots and lots of different ones, and they've sort of all coalesced into a, a very similar um, collection of, of systems that you can move reasonably easily between now. Um, but at the time, they were they were all radically different because they were all inventing new things, and then everybody was copying and, and enhancing and developing. It was uh, it was quite a fast evolution, wasn't it? It was, and it's a similar story with modern doors. I mean, Cubase really set the template for the main arrange page with all the tracks laid out like bits of chopped up tape, mm. and everyone else adapted that and, and followed on. I mean, I'm now um, a dedicated Logic user purely because I started off with C Lab Creator, which was the, the forerunner of that on the Atari ST, and that's going back some years it as is. well now. Yeah. 
Um, but they, they all do much the same job, but just in slightly different ways. Uh, I, d I don't find it that easy to transition from one to the other because the terminology tends to change and people hide functions away in different menus so you, you know perfectly well what you want to achieve but you can't find it. It's a bit like someone's come in and, and, and rearranged your kitchen and put everything in different cupboards and you're trying to cook a curry and it's like, where's the spice rack gone? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And they're a lot better than they used to be there. They are, they are getting better. And some of the light versions are very easy for people to get into. I think the big worry for me is that, unlike tape, and again, that had a finite life, of course, but there's no real physical media at the end of a, of a project. It's all stuck on a hard drive somewhere. Hard drives have a limited life, and even if you go to an SSD drive, they've only got so many read-write cycles before they stop working properly. And memory sticks, well, they're pretty good, but sometimes they become forgetful sticks. They do. So it's that, uh, that old adage that your data doesn't exist unless it's in three different places at the same time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But it, it does make me worry a little bit about the future, you know, in terms of archiving. Unless the National Sound Archive have got it, then where's it going to be? Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, if you look back, I mean, we have the, the big record labels have huge tape archives um, in different places around the world. And, and that is physical product that exists. People can go in there and find master tapes and find multi-tracks and and recover this stuff, whereas now, you know, the work from the last 10 years, 20 years, it is just digital files, probably on people's home computers. You know, recording engineers take their files home with them maybe and store it on a server at home. I'm not entirely sure they do that. Um, so I wonder where it all is now. Yeah. So what do you see as the future of this? Are we going to go to cloud-based everything, or do you think that the uh, internet connections will never be fast enough to make that viable for huge files? I think it'll be fast enough. Things are getting faster and more powerful all the time, aren't they? Mm. I don't know. Cloud, cloud has a lot of things going for it, but there's also a lot of security issues that might concern people. And even then, it needs to be stored in three different cloud systems at the same time, <laughs> because if one gets struck by lightning, you know, where's your data gone then? Well, yes. And as we've seen recently, it's so easy for, uh, for one small part of the internet to stop and, and you, all sorts of functions disappear. And you can't access things all of a sudden. So it's... Um, yeah, it's still being evolved, I think. So we should go back to engraving the ones and zeros on pieces of granite. That would last for quite a few years, yes. Well, that's all for now, so it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. Oh, and just before you go, let me point you to the soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts website page where you can explore what's playing on our other channels.